On this week's episode of I Believe Now What, we are going over part two of what you need to be on guard about at a church. Once again, this is not an exhaustive list. This is not a very obvious list either. I could have gone over the things such as preaching a false gospel, denying the deity of Jesus Christ, but those are very obvious. I wanted to focus more so on the subtle things. And once again, this is going to be part two. So if you haven't heard part one, go ahead back to last week's episode and check that out. But if not, Welcome to the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Welcome back, everybody. I hope you all are having a wonderful week out there. If this is your first time listening, I Believe Now What is a podcast that is just geared towards growing the body that is the church, the Christian and grace and knowledge. Uh, we talk about biblical theology. We talk about doctrine. We talk about topical studies. We do Bible studies. Anything that really has to do with the Christian walk of life, that's what we want to talk about. And continuing on to that, this is part two, and I'm sure you've heard the intro, so you already know, but this is part two on what we need to be on guard about at a church. I want to highlight once again, this is not an exhaustive list, and we're not going over the obvious things such as heresies, like direct heresies that you can outwardly see. What we're talking about here are the subtle things, the little things. This is not indicative of a church being a false church or a bad church. I want to make that very clear. I don't want people running and leaving their churches because they exhibit a few of these different characteristics, but rather I would have you examine this, pray on this, look it up for yourself in the Bible, and then talk to your leadership at your church about this. And if you are in leadership at your church, pray over this as we bring it up to the board of elders or wherever, however your church hierarchy is established. The whole goal of this is just to evaluate because honestly, at the end of the day, I am not infallible. Nobody is infallible. Only the word of God is infallible. And it's just an examination on what we can be doing better to be better aligned in the word of God. Now, obviously, some of these things that we are talking about can lead to very grave errors. And if some churches exhibit all these or most of these behaviors, then maybe it is time to question whether or not you should keep attending this church. And if this church is so far gone or maybe never even was there on the word of God that you need to decide to leave. There is no fixing it from the inside. But with all that being said, I do want to, I, I'm very careful when I say that because I'm not about church hopping and I'm not about looking for the negative in anything, but instead, as I said in the last episode, being that change inside your church. Now, with all that being said, that's something that the Holy Spirit needs to guide you on. And that's my prayer is that you will allow the Holy Spirit to guide you there. Let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer before we start episode two. Dear Lord, as we go over these topics, please just let us be charitable. Let us examine and let's just talk about the truth in love, Lord. I don't want anything else to come out of my mouth that is not the truth in love. Thank you so much for everything you do in our lives and your will alone. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. All right, with that being said, let's get into it. So we left off the list last time on number nine. That was characteristic number nine. Uh, and just to reiterate for you, we'll go over briefly what we talked about in those first nine. The number one was one pastor being in charge of the church. Number two was sermons that are about the person, not about God. Number three was a church that values numbers and evangelizing at, over actually feeding their sheep with good sound doctrine theology 
the Bible, an overemphasis, number four, an overemphasis on offering and tithing, number five, putting feelings over scripture, number six, they're an intellectual church, but they are not spiritual whatsoever, number seven was hypnotic music being played, whether it was worship or during prayer, and number eight and nine were music that was played over the background of altar calls and at the ends of sermons. And just kind of talking about how the deception and the emotionalism sweeps up into that. Once again, if you have not listened to part one of this, we go over those topics very in depth in about a 36, 40 minute series or so as we talk. All right. So that moves us on to number 10. And that is going to be topical sermons. All right, what's a topical discer- uh, topical discer- topical sermon? What is that? Uh, let's go ahead and define what that is. Essentially, a topical sermon is a sermon that you do over a certain topic. Now, I want to first off and say these. This is not bad all the time. I do believe that topical sermons are good because maybe the country is going through something crazy right now and it needs to be addressed in the pulpit at church. That is perfectly fine and well. But when your church is constantly doing topical sermons, all of your sermons, a vast majority of your sermons even, are topical in nature, meaning they're just talking about different topics rather than the scripture themselves, that's where something can go wrong. So the dangers of a topical sermon, and honestly, if you've never picked up the book, uh, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever, highly, highly encourage you to do it. It covers this topic so well. Uh, One of the things that can possibly go wrong with a topical sermon is that if you keep doing it over and over and over again, essentially the pastor is changing the congregation into his own image rather than to the image of Christ. What, What exactly do I mean by that? So when you as a pastor or a preacher are putting together a topical sermon, the typically, not saying always, but typically the way it goes is you have a topic you want to talk about. Let's say you want to talk about um, perseverance of the saints. So you start pulling all these verses that talk about how you can't lose your salvation and all these different things, and you start kind of parrying. Uh, Perry, (laughs) cherry picking these verses, and then you make a sermon out of it. Is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. But if you do it often, one, your sheep are not getting fed going through the word of God. Two, you as the pastor are only giving them the topics that you want to talk about. And three, sometimes, and a lot of times actually, verses can be taken out of context. But now when you do an expository style sermon or an exegetical style sermon, what you're doing is you are taking, let's say, one of the parables of Jesus and you decide to go over it and you preach that sermon line by line, verse by verse as you're explaining it. What you're doing then is you're keeping the entire thing in context. Not only that, that there was a famous saying, it was actually in that book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I believe it said, if... A sermon was smallpox. The only clean thing on there, non-infected thing on there would be the word of God. So the closer you stick to the word of God, the more you are reading from your Bible and explaining those verses, the less chance that you have that you're creating an error. 
But when you're preaching a topical sermon, and this is the real danger that it comes into that I see, when you're preaching a topical sermon, the potential for you to take verses out of context and make the Bible say whatever you want to say. Once again, it goes back to that whole thing. The pastor, instead of creating the church, or, well, we, he doesn't do that, but instead of the pastor uh, giving the verses to the sheep and the sheep becoming more like the image of Christ, and when I say sheep, I mean congregation, what he's doing is he's making the sheep more like him. He's making his congregation more like him, and it becomes a giant echo chamber. But when you, give, uh, when you give those verses line by line and you go through and you keep it in context, the Holy Spirit is in those words and the Holy Spirit is moving through that message. I think I'm, I'm kind of kicking this horse dead here, but it is very important because there are pastors that I have sat under that were very topical. It was very hard to go through, uh, say, maybe a chapter in the Bible or an entire book or something like that. I'm not saying everybody needs to be like John MacArthur and go through line by line every single book of the New Testament, although that would be amazing because you're never going to take things way out of context then. Uh, Well, I won't say never, but it's very hard to when you're sticking to the verses as opposed to sticking to a topic. Okay, so number 11, and this one, this one really isn't directed towards the pastors here or anything like that. Uh, I mean, it can be indirectly, but number 11, the fruits of the members. All right, so what do I mean by that? Take a look at the members of the church. Maybe your church doesn't even have a membership. Just look at the congregation then. Look at their lifestyle. Look at the way they're living as a whole. Obviously, I'm not telling you to go out there and judge everybody, but what I'm telling you is just look at it. Look at it from the outside view, especially this is really easy for someone that's kind of grown up in the same church most of their lives. Look at the members of that church. Look at the people that constantly attend every Sunday in that church. Do their lifestyles reflect the Bible? Do their lifestyles reflect what Christianity is as described in the Bible? Or are their lifestyles more conformed to the image of the world? This says a lot about what your church is preaching. One of in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we went over it. One of the abilities that a pastor must have is the ability to teach. It's one of the key characteristics, and that's a gift from God. So the ability to teach, well, how do you prove that? I talked about that in there saying you prove that by looking at your sheep and seeing what they've gotten out of your message. Are lives being changed? Are they developing a deeper understanding of the word? And are they enacting that in their everyday lives? Now I get it. A pastor cannot control the actions of every individual inside the church, and neither should he. But nevertheless, it is a reflection of what the leadership is in the church and how they preach. We talk about this in the army all the time. Uh, They say when your subordinate messes up, they usually joke around with you saying, well, he's just a reflection of his leadership. And we joke around a a lot about that. But essentially, at the end of the day, if you as a leader in the army have soldiers that are constantly messing up, then yeah, maybe they that is a reflection of your leadership and you need to do some self-examining to make sure you correct whatever you're doing wrong. So is the same for the pastor. If your church, if the church that you are attending has Christians that are not living a Christian lifestyle by the Bible, once again, not saying it's going to be perfect, but you should be able to look at the fruits of their life and examine if they are walking in the spirit or not. You should be able to make a general determination based off of that. And through that, that will show you if the pastor is actually teaching things correctly. Now, I do believe 
the true Christian will continue to grow because they're going to have that hunger. They're going to either one, the true Christian would probably leave a church like that, or two, the true Christian would essentially continue to grow through their own personal studies and other types of fellowship, all while they could still possibly be attending that church. I don't know. I don't like to deal in absolutes when it comes like that, because once again, I am not the determiner of salvation. I am not the determiner of what is inside people's hearts. But what we can do is we can look at the fruits. And if the your church is essentially spiritually dead, in other words, your church is walking in the flesh, then maybe you need to reevaluate how as uh, if you're a pastor you need to reevaluate how you're going about your messages or as someone inside that church you need to reevaluate if that church is the right church for you and if you need to talk to your leadership on that okay so enough on that one number 12 and this one's a little bit more obvious than some of the other ones that I've been talking about but nevertheless it can sneak in there and that is leaders living a lavish lifestyle now what do i mean by that no i'm I don't want to bring out the whole, you know, your pastor should be living in a tent on the side of the church and that should be where he lives and he should be below average means of everyone in the church. I'm not saying that. A pastor should live a humble life. I truly do believe that. That's just reflective of Jesus. But nevertheless, uh, I'm not saying a pastor has to be dirt poor or anything like that. Like I said before in the last episode, you know, pastors are called to be doubly blessed. They're, they're supposed to be financially blessed. They should be able to focus on their ministry. But nevertheless, if they are living a lavish lifestyle, and what I mean by that is a lifestyle that is definitely way better than pretty much everybody inside of that congregation, or at least most of the people, you know, if say in my area, uh, I'm living in Southwest Louisiana right now. There's a lot of people that, that live in you know, usually trailers on, you know, about five, six acres of land, smaller single family style homes. If your pastor has a 10 bedroom mansion, but your entire congregation is living in single wide trailers, well, maybe you need to examine, <laughs> you know, your spending habits as a pastor. And maybe you and the congregation need to examine whether or not that pastor is truly using the church money the way that they should. This also brings up a lot of different things, as in, pointing to what that pastor truly sees available. I I'm, I picked on him a lot last time. I'm going to pick on him a lot uh, now. But Hillsong Church, all of the, if you go look through a majority of their, I haven't looked at every single pastor they've had, but I've seen plenty of sermons and I've seen plenty of other things pointing out those pastors and those pastors are dressed like the world. They're wearing the $500 shoes and the $7,000 watches and the super expensive, whatever else apparel that you got. And they're trying to look like the world. I once had, uh, when I was very young in my Christianity, I was attending this church up in Puyallup, Washington. If anybody's ever familiar with that area, uh, I was very young. I was in my early twenties, 21, 22 years old, just met my wife and we started going to this church. Uh, I believe it was called Champion Center. I don't know anything about it now, so I'm not going to pass any judgments. But then, man, that church was all about looking like the world. They had the Starbucks in the lobby. And the pastor, one, you know, he would always walk in with these suede shoes and these fancy suits. And he once talked and bragged about, I think it was a Mercedes. It was some type of expensive, fancy car that he had. And... Yeah, that's just, it just didn't sit right with me. I wasn't even saved at that point, but something just didn't sit right with me about that. Like you're supposed to be a man of God, but you're talking about all these worldly things that you have as if it's nothing, you know, 
Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I really want to reiterate this, that I truly believe that pastors shouldn't be living that homeless person style life. You know, like I said, camping out in a tent on the property of the church or anything like that. But nevertheless, if your pastor is overly, it seems like he's overly obsessed with a lavish lifestyle, that's something to bring up to the leadership. And sadly, in a lot of those churches, I was talking about that church I attended up in Puyallup, Washington. Uh, it was pretty hard if you wanted to actually talk to the head pastor. You had to go through all these hoops before you can do that. So even if you can talk to leadership, it might be hard. Uh, that gets into a whole nother topic that we could talk about later. But anyways, once again, living a lavish lifestyle, that is something that you need to keep on guard about. All right, moving down the line. And we are on number 13, and that is using, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I really wanted to narrow it down specifically, and that's using Old Testament passages out of context, or really taking any passage out of context, really. But I really wanted to focus on the Old Testament stuff because I see it mostly abused with those. When your pastor or your leader, whoever is giving a sermon, uses these passages, especially once again in the Old Testament, and they just blurt it out, it may sound real good at first, but then when you actually read those verses out loud in context, oh my gosh, it has a completely different meaning than what they used it for. And that could be very deceiving. Let me give you an example. One of the more popular Old Testament passages that I've seen used out of context was Jeremiah 29, 11, where it says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, if you look at that, that means like, oh, God has all these wonderful plans for me and it's amazing and that is so awesome, plans to prosper me. Except, once again, stealing a line from Matt Chandler here, that passage is not about you. <laughs> if you actually read the context, the entire book of Jeremiah leading up to chapter 29 was about Israel's disobedience and God's punishment. In fact, chapter 29 is written to the exiles that are in Babylon who were there because of their disobedience. Go, go check that out, I believe, in uh, chapters 25 and 27. But the promises in chapter 29 are not for you today. They are for restoration following judgment understanding that discipline will bring obedience to those people in Israel. Hopefully that made some sense to you. But essentially at the end of the day, that's what I'm talking about when using these passages out of context. It is so easy and it goes back to kind of what we talked about in topical sermons and it goes back to what we talked about in the first episode about doing the dare to be a Daniel sermon or what's your Goliath style sermon where you place yourself inside these passages when at the end of the day, once again from Matt Chandler, it's not about you. It is about a specific thing. And it's a story that needs to be told and needs to be understand, un understand. It needs to be understood. But at the same time, we can't place those things out of context. If a pastor is consistently doing that, uh, you know, do this next time you're at church, if at your church, and if an Old Testament passage gets brought up, Write it down. Just write down the verse real quick and then go read that entire chapter. In fact, go read what the book was about if you have a study Bible that talks about what each book of the Bible was about. Go read that chapter. Read what that chapter was about. Read what that entire book was about and see if that fits in with how your pastor was using that Old Testament passage. 
Now, there are also a lot of New Testament passages that you could use out of context. Those are a little bit easier to spot. It's the Old Testament ones that are so dangerous because most of those passages are referring to a specific group of people in a specific time frame, specifically the Jews, uh, not really so much us today. Nevertheless, it's there for our learning. It's there for our education. It's there for our edification but not so much all the time for application. Once again, that's something that you got to pray about. Uh, some New Testament passages that often get taken out of context, like I can do all things through God who strengthens me. I think a lot of Christians know that now, that that is often used out of context. You would see, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. When I was in high school, I used to write that on my arm before a cross-country meet, thinking that it had something to do with God allowing me to PR, get, set a personal record in my next race, when, you know, it had nothing to do with that. But instead, that verse had everything to do with about learning to be content when you don't have everything and in hard, tough situations, uh, and, and God enables you to persevere through that. That's what it means when I can do all things through God, who or through Christ who strengthens me. Or gives me strength, depending on which translation you're reading it from. But yes, number 13 was out-of-context Bible passages. And like I said, pay attention to those Old Testament ones. All right, number 13. Are we on 13 or are we on 14? No, we're on 14. All right, and that is a church that is super scripted. All right, what do I mean by this? This is, it doesn't always have to be a mega church. But it usually falls in line with those. Those are the ones you need to watch out for. Now, if you know me, I am not against megachurches. I think megachurches are fine as long as it's done right. But I do believe the megachurch has a lot more room for error to grow. I picked on them a few times already. I'll go back to them. Look at Hillsong Church. All right. Well, number one, I don't. I believe they do preach a false theology. But Thilson Church has so many scandals going on. Why is that? It's harder to keep accountability in those mega churches. But then check out another mega church. Go to John MacArthur's church. I've often used him here before. Very limited when it comes to the whole scandals. Why is that? He has a congregation of about 9,000 and who knows how many, uh, close to a million probably people listen to his messages. So He's a very popular pastor, whether he would like to admit that or not, either in a good way or a bad way. But why do you see so many scandals coming out of Hillsong and almost none, I'm sure there's a couple, but almost none coming out of John MacArthur's church? I'll tell you why. Because one is solid and built on the word of God and the other one is not. Uh, so anyways, that was about <laughs> mega churches and this was not supposed to be about it. It was supposed to be about super scripted churches. Uh, now, obviously, I do believe churches should have an order to it. There should Everything's done in good order and discipline, just like the Bible talks about. Go to 1 Corinthians. It talks about that. Everything should be in good order and discipline. But nevertheless, when you are so scripted to the point like, okay, stand here, uh, this is going to happen then, and then these lights come down, and then this video starts playing, and then you get on at minute 15, and then you can only talk for up to two minutes, and then this person comes on and does this and so forth and so on. It's ran like a Broadway show. That is where I believe things can get dangerous. Number one, because the spirit really gets left out of, out of it. Uh, and it's funny enough that, you know, most of these mega churches that do this claim to be very spirit led. Uh, I won't throw some names out there, but essentially that's a lot of what you see. But yet it is so super scripted and it is all made for TV. It's not a good thing to have that. Why? 
well, it goes back to all the little tiny deception things we've really talked about so far. When you're so scripted and you're so focused on doing it this way, the spirit normally gets left out of that. All right, let's move on to number 15, not supporting missions. All right, what do I mean by that? That are That is missionary type work whether it would be here in the United States, but I really, be, I, now this is a personal thing and I truly believe churches supporting missions in the U.S. is good because people still need to hear the gospel here, but I truly believe missions need to go outwards, like out of the country, into these different countries that have not heard the gospel yet. In the United States, we have, we have access to a Bible. Anybody that has a cell phone can download a Bible app. There are Bibles all over the place. There are so many churches. You could just walk down the street, enter into a church. Bam, you're good. You got the gospel. But what about these areas of the world that don't have that? They don't have open Christianity. Christianity might not even be allowed, but yet missionaries are willing to go in there into these hostile environments where they could be killed for doing what they're doing, but yet they're willing to go in there. They need support. They need food, they need money, they need training, uh, they need supplies, medical supplies, all these different things. A good church should be supporting foreign missions. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, that your church specifically has to raise up your own missionaries. I know some congregations are very small and it's very hard to do that. But there are plenty of mission groups out there where churches can put uh, you know, a portion of the offering money towards that mission group. If you don't have your own missions, I know the church that I grew up in, I believe we did actually have direct support to missionaries. Uh, we weren't a huge church, but we were big enough to do that. And I think that's outstanding. If you can do that, raise up your own missionaries, send them out. Uh, but if you can't, if you're small enough, your church should at least be giving to missions groups. I know myself being in the military, I can't always, uh, give to a church that's giving the missions because I'm bouncing from church to church to church so much. So personally, like one thing that I do is I like to give to Heart Cry Mission Society. I'm not bragging about that. I'm just saying because I've done my research on them. I know they're a good missionary society. So if you're in a situation like myself, you could give to a mission society such as that. Or if you are a church that cannot fully train your missionaries, as I was saying, you can find a legit missionary society that lines up with your biblical values and give to them. Essentially, what was the great commission that God said to do to go out, spread the gospel, spread the good news of Jesus Christ, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your church should be supporting that. And if they're not, this is something that you should bring up to your leadership. I don't think this is an issue that you need to leave your church for by any means, as are most of these issues we've gone over. But I do believe it's something that if your church is not doing, you should bring up to leadership. This is a good thing. This is something that we should be doing as Christians, supporting missions, especially foreign missions. All right, moving it down the line. Number 16, I believe we're on. And that is a lack of local community support. Now, I'm not talking about outside community, like the community loves you and all these things. I'm talking about working inside your local community. As a church, you should be working inside your local community to spread the good news of Christ. Pretty much missions work, but just inside your local community. I know down here in Southwest Louisiana, I've seen many opportunities where some churches, and, and this really spoke up about the churches, uh, many opportunities where churches were able to do this because we had so many hurricanes and natural disasters hit over the last few years. 
And you saw the churches that stepped up and did something. I'm not necessarily always saying that that's reflective of a good church, but it's definitely a characteristic that a good church would have. And that is supporting the community, spreading the love of Christ through their actions. That's something a good church does. Once again, I don't want to say that's the entire measurement tool like, oh, well, this church, you know, there's plenty of bad churches that give money out, feed the poor, so, so forth and so on. But it is a mark of a good church, in my opinion, to give out to that. And if your church is not doing that, that's something you once again should bring up to your leadership and talk about. All right. Next topic. Hired non-Christian staff. Once again, this is a bigger thing in the mega church world. I know it sounds like I'm picking on the mega churches, but I've already given you my whole spiel on that. But having non-hired or sorry, non-hired, having hired, like, so in other words, you're paying them, your church is paying them to be on staff, whether it's music, soundboard, video editing, those types of things, and they are not Christians. Number one, that shows me that you are not trying to grow your church from the sheep within, utilizing the talents that are inside that church, the God-given gifts that they have. Uh, It shows me that if your church is doing this, that they care more about their looks, more about their aesthetics, more about uh, their appeal than they do the actual body of Christ themselves. It's it's a very sad thing. And sadly, when I found out, there's a lot more churches than I realized that do this having non-Christian hired staff. Once again, it's usually in the music department, the soundboard, advertising, things of that nature. Now, this isn't specifically church-related, but I I watched a few documentaries uh, about the contemporary Christian music scene. This is huge there. Most of the people that they hire are non-Christians. In fact, a lot of the members of the bands inside these Christian music singers are not Christian. They straight up admit it. They talk about how they have drinking parties afterwards and all this stuff. Uh, not getting too far into that. All right, next topic. I think we that one's pretty self-explanatory. So next topic, leadership that never listens. All right, this is this kind of goes back to what I talked about when you are maybe in a church and it, it's like jumping through hoops to try to get to that leader to even talk to them. That's a warning sign right there. And another warning sign is if you can talk to your leadership, they just refuse to listen. They act as if they know everything. This kind of goes back to the one pastor in charge thing that we talked about last episode. When you believe that you're the be all say all, when someone's the be all say all at that church, they'll never gonna, they have no reason to listen to you because there's no accountability unless the Holy Spirit is inside of them convicting them. Leadership, while I get it. As a pastor, trust me, I, I am a, a, a pastor's kid, all right? My dad was a pastor for a little bit. I have I've great relationships with lots of pastors. And one of the things they we they love to talk about when we all get together is, you know, the, the constant complaining that people do. We're not talking about it in a negative way because they'll bring up stuff. But there are those people who just want to complain about the color of the carpets. They didn't like the how the lights were. They didn't like uh, the songs that the band picked or all these other stupid things that people complain about. But when a real topic comes up, maybe one of the topics we're talking about here today comes up and they just refuse to listen. They won't even have a conversation about it. And if they do, it's like a two minute in passing. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got your point across. I'll think about it type conversation. That's wrong. That's not right by any means. And it's definitely a warning sign that maybe you need to reevaluate that church. All right, moving down the line. I've lost count now, so I'm just going off the topic. All right. We talked about leadership that never listens. Now we're on. Actually, we only got two more to go. So 
One, now this one's really obvious, and I debated putting this on there because it's obvious, but I do believe this can be subtle in nature, depending on what type of church you're going to, but you rarely ever hear about Jesus. Now, like I said, that might be a duh moment, but essentially, this is something that can creep in there. You you might get the few messages where they talk about Jesus or something like that, but everything is very topical or something like that. It's, they're talking about you, self-motivation, these types of things. You rarely hear Jesus preached. Uh, now that I said it, it probably becomes much more obvious. And this is something that you just need to go back and pay attention to at your church if you think your church is doing this. I mean, by all means, pay attention to the message, but keep a little tab. See how many times Jesus is talked about. I'm not just saying the word Jesus, but essentially uh, Jesus's life, what he did, how that plays a role. I mean, he is our Lord and Savior and everything that we do revolves around that. Uh, so if your church is not talking about Jesus, well, then maybe they are not a good church in the first place. Once again, just something to look at, sit back and evaluate. All right. And our last topic on this series, and this is, well, not the entire series, but on this whole, what to be on guard about at a church series. And that is the pragmatic church. Um, what's, what's pragmatic? Uh, pretty much. The church that tries to stay relevant, the church that tries to be the cool, hip church, doing whatever's cool, all these types of things to attract more people to come in. They play It plays a lot in with that market-driven church that we talked about earlier, but I essentially really wanted to hit the pragmatism. It's the pastor who's constantly, and the staff who's constantly dressing in the new, hip, modern, expensive clothing. It's the programs and the videos and the music that you're playing and all these things. They care about all these outside things that the outside world cares about. And once again, they're doing it for maybe good purposes because they think that by doing that, they're bringing people in. The problem is, is if you use, and I heard a pastor say this, and I wish I can attribute to who it was. I can't remember at this time, but he essentially said, if you use worldly ways to bring people into your church, you're going to have to keep using worldly ways to keep them in. And it's so true. As Christians, we are not called to be like the world. As Christians, we should not be a reflection of the world, but instead, we should be different. We should be set apart. That's biblical. That's in the Bible. The very fact that we are Christians should make us look strange to the outside world. And honestly, someone who the Holy Spirit is pulling on their heart and God is calling them to repentance and to believe, that's what they're going to be looking for. Why do they want to go look for the exact same thing that they're trying to get out of? It makes no sense. The Christian, the church, should be completely separate from the world. This is one reason why I purposely, and I'm not saying a more modern looking church can't be like this, but I like to gravitate when I move and go to a church to a more old school style church. The building isn't lavish. They don't have a coffee bar, you know, a Starbucks in the lobby. Nothing wrong with serving coffee at church, by the way. I'm talking about the ones that have a Starbucks. You know, I'll go back to the um, Champion Center. The one in Puyallup, Washington that I was going to when I was in my young 20s. That is a very pragmatic church. They had the Starbucks in the lobby. They had the bookstore there. Everybody was in the latest fashions. Uh, the music they played was hip. It was cool. The the young adults program that I was in, it was very geared towards using the ways of the world to bring you in and to keep you there. And it fed your flesh. And you know why I know it fed my flesh? Because my wife and I, in our very young, early marriage years... 
we love to go out, party at the bar, drink, do all these different things, and then we would go to church on Sunday and feel great about ourselves. It was essentially the same way I was when I talked about in the last episode, before I met my wife, I'd like to, my church was sitting and listening to Joel Olstein's podcast. <laughs> I'm not lying when I say that. Oh, and I feel so bad for it. But it's just amazing, though, at the same time, how far God has brought me from that. Um, but anyways, yes, the pragmatic church. I mean, back on that Piala church, they, they, I, we recently wanted to see what they were doing. So we went on their YouTube, and this was a few months ago, and they literally had a new program for young adults called WTF. WTF. Now, if you are older, maybe you don't know what that is. But if you're around my age or younger, you know what in the world WTF stands for. And it's not a pretty word. I don't don't even like saying the acronym itself. But nevertheless, they had a program for young adults called WTF. And obviously, it didn't mean what it means in the world today. It meant something different. But the fact that you had to use that to bring people in, that's disgusting. And it's wrong. You don't have to do those types of things uh, to attract people. Like I said, the Holy Spirit is what draws people to church. The Holy Spirit is what keeps people in church. You as the church don't need to focus on that. You as the church should focus on preaching the word of God truthfully and accurately. All right. Well, with all that being said, and these rants uh, over, I guess a lot of them were kind of rant style, but essentially... I just wanted to get across these different things. Usually, I'm very grounded uh, in Scripture, going over the passages like we normally do when we go over these different topics. But I really thought it was good to note out some of the things we shouldn't be looking for. Because sadly, in our world today, there are so many churches that are doing the wrong thing. And it doesn't get brought up because people are afraid of being called unloving or you're not about church unity or you're just causing division and all this stuff. Uh, I can't remember who said this. Uh, It was one of the reformers, I believe. But essentially, they said that unity should never come at the cost of the truth. In other words, we're supposed, we as Christians, we unify around the truth. We don't unify for the, by forsaking the truth, saying like, well, well, there, it's very untrue, but you know what? We need to be unified. So let's come together and, you know, uh, all this stuff. No, 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 no. We're supposed to be unified around the truth. When you start forsaking that truth, that's not true unity. That's just being, uh, what's the best word I can say? Foolish. You're being foolish in that case. Uh, And you're being a wishful thinker, I guess, is another word you can put on it. Okay, so before we wrap this up, I do want to mention one of my good buddies was listening to the show. And they were like, hey, man, maybe you should give some books that uh, people can listen to on this topic. Or maybe even just show what you're reading. I think I mentioned it earlier on in the show But Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever, an amazing book. Highly suggest if you are looking for what makes a healthy church, go check that book out. Go read that book. It is put very plain, very simply, and it is very easy to read. I I, I flew through it. I'm still flying through it right now. I love this book. It is a good book and highly encourage you to read that if you're more so curious on what makes a healthy church. Also, Recently, actually last week, uh, it's uploaded right now. I was invited to a podcast and uh, it's called Under the Cloud Podcast. I've mentioned it a few times here on the show. He actually did an interview with me, uh, my like second episode I think I've ever done called Christians in the Military. Uh, he invited me to his show to be on his podcast. 
And we can talk, we, we, we end up talking about the gift of tongues, something very controversial that he doesn't normally touch up on in his show. He likes to keep it very lighthearted, doesn't like to dive into theology. And he wanted to make sure that he had the cessationist point of view defended on there. So that's what I was invited there for. Now, all for my cessationist brothers and sisters, before you go on there and think this is going to be some knockdown, drag out debate, no, this was not the point of that. We were there to simply just talk about it. These were all brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, actually, it was just brothers there. There were no sisters in Christ there, but it was just brothers in Christ. It was myself and two other people, or actually three other people there talking. Yes, I was the only cessationist in the room, and they didn't turn around on me and start beating me up for my cessationist views. Nevertheless, it was just a healthy conversation. Yes, I could have said a lot more in there, but at the same time, I wasn't trying to start a fight, and neither were they. So, with all that being said, maybe one day I'll get an episode where I can drag him on here and we'll have a whole bunch of cessationists talk about it. <laughs> I really want to get him on an interview and talk about the doctrines of grace or Calvinism, because that's one that I really feel like I could defend well in a conversation about, and I know he does not believe in that, but we'll see if we can ever let that make that happen or not. But anyways, y'all have a wonderful week. I've been jibber jabbering a little bit too much now. Y'all have a wonderful one and thank you for listening. Oh, and before I forget, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, gripes, complaints, suggestions, whatever the case may be, hit us up at ibnwpodcast at gmail.com. That is ibnwpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just type in, I believe, now what? And you should find us. All right, y'all have a wonderful one. And thank you again for listening. Next week's episode, we will be talking about what actually makes a good church. And just like this, this won't be an exhaustive list. This will just be uh, some things that I have seen biblically that can make a good church uh, from my personal experiences and other things from resources that I've read. Another good resource for that would be to read the same book I mentioned here today, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. Cannot praise that book enough. All right, finally, y'all have a wonderful one. I will see y'all next week.